You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. So if you have your place in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd I'd invite you to stand, as is our habit here, in honor of God's Word. Be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are meaningless. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on us and by your grace pour out your spirit here. Open our hearts and our minds. Speak to us. That we might hear and understand and see and believe that there is a greater vision for us, a greater vision for our flourishing than, than the one our culture paints, a vision that is bound up in a reconciled relationship with you through Jesus. Would you work this morning to help us? Because without you, we are lost. And so speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. The notion of a, a fountain or a spring of, of youth, uh, it, a kind of a spring of water that can restore youth to those who either drink it or bathe in it, uh, this is, this is a, an idea that goes back as far as the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century B.C., so it's not an anywhere near a new story. The, the 16th century explorer Ponce de Leon, of course, is famous for having tried to seek that fountain in what is now Florida. Uh, in an interesting mashup of the story of the Fountain of Youth with the story of Faust, Oscar Wilde wrote a, uh, an interesting, I guess it was a short story, it was rather scandalous in the day, of, of Dorian Gray and his picture, his painting, the painting that would grow old while he remained young little deal he made with the devil. And of course, an even more interesting mashup is when Indiana Jones found out that the fountain of youth is really the cup that Jesus drank from the Last Supper, which prolongs life of those who drink of it, but only if they continue to live in a cave for the rest of their days, right? We are fascinated by this notion. Of course, you and I, we're sophisticated enough not to believe in silly things like drinking water that will make us young again. We... Um, We don't believe that. Instead, we believe we can keep age at bay with things like surgery, skin cream, and Botox. So 
So instead of drinking the fluid, we inject it into our muscles, and then they go taut, right? The question is why? Why do we feel the need to be forever young? What do we think can be fulfilled in us as long as we stay young? And that is the question that we come to the text with this morning. Um, It is part of our culture. It is part of our everyday experience. And it is a question we need to answer. And so this morning we're going to be looking at this text in two ways. As the outline that's in your bulletin says, if that's helpful to you, great. If not, just leave it. We're going to look at what it it looks like to drink from this fountain. And then secondly, we're going to look at what it might mean for us to exchange fountains. Okay? Let's, uh, we're, this is a short passage, right? It was 7 to 10. That's, that's not a whole lot of verses. So we're going to break it down in two parts uh, in terms of the, the text itself. The first is dealing with youth and enjoyment. So look down at verses 7 to 8. If you have your Bibles out, go ahead and look down at those. He says this, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. All right? Stop there. Here, here's what's going on. Basically, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes is saying what we all know to be true. Life is good. Life is a good thing. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In other words, life is full of enjoyment. Okay, And this is the time of year where that is like readily apparent. I mean, who did not walk outside for the majority of this week and just breathe deep of spring and think, ah, finally, I don't have to worry about my pipes freezing anymore. I can walk outside and not uh, feel pain. Like, it's great. So this is, this is easy for us, but he continues. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many and all that comes is meaningless. All right? Now, scholars will tell you that when our teacher contrasts light and darkness, what he's contrasting is not literal light and darkness, but, but he's speaking of youth and old age. Here's the basic idea. Enjoy your youth while it lasts. Enjoy it. Have fun. Because your older years will outnumber your younger ones. It's really simple. Your older years will outnumber your younger ones. And then he gives his refrain that it's all meaningless. Now, if you've been here for some time, you know what he means by that. But some of you are new, so let me, let me remind us all what, what that's about. Um, when, when we say the word meaningless, you and I mean pointless, purposeless. Like, what's the point of this whole thing? It's useless. But, but in what he means is that it's, it's vaporous, that it can't hold on to its... The, it can't fulfill its promises. That's what he means by meaningless. Not that it doesn't have anything good about it, but that it can't fulfill in its promises. Okay? So let me piece this together. What he's telling us is this. Look, youth is great. Youth is great. Enjoy the years that you have. But remember that they end and that your older years will be more than your younger ones. So then it cannot deliver for you. Now, what I've said is actually controversial for most of us. We just don't realize it. Because you see, in the early 20th century, our society created a new category to go along with um, human development. We call it adolescence. I don't know if you realize that that was created in the early 20th century, but it was created in the early 20th century. And it was meant to help describe this stressful time of maturity that goes from, you know, uh, the onset of puberty that normally lasted until legal adulthood. And this freedom came to be defined, or this this period came to be defined by adult freedoms without adult responsibilities. Right? Adult freedoms without adult responsibilities that have now come to be kind of um, encultured into this category that we call the the age of the teenager. Right? Adult Adult freedoms without adult responsibilities. And more recently, 
around 2002, the National Academy of Sciences extended the end of adolescence because it's so stressful growing up that now it extended not to legal adulthood but to age 30. Congratulations. Many of you in this room are still adolescents. Okay? Begins to make some sense of some things, I think. All right, now, the point is this. As a culture, we are trying to extend this period as long as possible. We want to pretend that we can hold on to childhood, that we can hold on to youth for a long time. Now we call it, we have a, we have a, a, a label for this, right? We call it the failure to launch, right? The failure to launch is what happens when someone just can't quite get out of the house. You know, Bill Cosby talked about like 18, I'm kicking them out and they always come back. Why do they come? Now we just call it failure to launch, okay? The point that the teacher is trying to make here is not to downplay youth. He says to enjoy it. It's a great thing. Have fun. Well, he's simply saying it can't last forever. That's why he says it's meaningless, Rejoice in those years, but don't pretend you can hold on to them. You can't keep them forever. The days of darkness are longer. In other words, those years cannot carry your hopes. And that brings us to youth and inevitability. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Again, he tells the young to rejoice in that youth, right? He, he tells us something we don't expect, however, in the Bible. He says this, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Okay, here's what he means by this. Remember, some of you haven't been here, so let me, let me remind us. The writer of Ecclesiastes is writing this book from a perspective that is deeply secular. He is looking at the world and he's going, okay, let's take God out of it. Let's, there's got to be something other than him that I can chase after, okay? So you're going to hear things from his lips that you do not expect from a book of the Bible. But here's the deal. The Bible is not afraid of people exploring things. Because the Bible addresses us um, as the word of God. And as God created the world, he determined what is, what is reality. And so he's not scared of people trying to find life apart from him. He knows, try it. It's not going to work. And so this book is a, is a, is a means for us to, to grapple with some of that because this writer is coming to us from the perspective of someone who has uh, more money than we can ever imagine, more power than we could possibly grasp, um, more, more wisdom and intelligence than any of us in this room have. In other words, he's got all the tools to do everything that in, in our darkest moments, we think, if I just had this, everything would be fine. He goes, really? I did. Let's see what it looked like. Okay? And so he says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. What he means is, let your desires drive you. Go for it. Okay? Think about that for a second. What he is saying is, while you are young, get what you can from it. Do whatever your heart tells you. That is the very message of our culture. That is the very heart of what it means to be Western today. The notion that you go and sow your wild oats while you're young. Do whatever enters your heart to do. Whatever your eyes see. This is, this is the existentialist calling you to not be bound by these arbitrary rules, but to go and experience everything you desire. Okay? But then he continues... But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Bummer. Okay. Um, all right. As soon as I said God and judgment, some of you checked out. So I need you to check back in and listen if you can. Because the basic message of verse 9 is this. Get what you can from your youth. 
But just know you're going to have to pay the piper at some point. You're going to have to pay the piper at some point. Now, let's be honest. That is offensive to most of us. Because for most of us, we've come to believe that if we have a desire, if there's some desire in our hearts, that um, it must be okay. That, you know, we've come to believe that a, a desire from within can't be bad. And that somehow to, to deny such things is to deny ourselves. You know, we, we, we especially have joined this with, with sexuality in our culture. But here, though, the teacher is saying that there is a judge who isn't much interested in your desires. He's not much interested in my desires. That there's a standard above the, uh, the old phrase, to thine own self be true. A much higher. But others of us, though, aren't offended at that. Some of us in the room are like, yeah, get him, Rick. Like, that, that's not offensive. What may be offensive, though, is that the teacher doesn't seem to think that that reality of God, of judgment coming, should deter you. He doesn't think it should deter you. He, he basically says, look, you're going to be judged for it, but, you know, whatever. Go, go get what you can out of your youth because it's all going to fade anyway. It's all going to go away. So you might as well just do what you can. Okay, and that brings us into verse 10. Now that we're nice and worked up on that. He, he brings us into verse 10 where he talks about removing vexation and putting pain away. Okay, now I know most of you use the word vexed every day. It's a very common word today. But um, here's what he's talking about. That word vexation means, means grief in the original or stress or, um, or uh, despair. The word translated pain literally in the, in the original Hebrew means evil. It means evil. Uh, uh, the thought here is that the stress, the, the despair, and the pain come not because of aging, because he says put them away. Let's be honest. As you get older, you cannot put the, that away. It doesn't, there's nothing you can do about that. It doesn't come because of aging, but because of what he says at the end of the verse. Youth and the dawn of life are meaningless. In other words, he's saying, pursue your pleasure but stop stressing and despairing and being in pain when it all fades. You can't hold on to it. Okay? Now listen to me. This is not some religious pontiff trying to rain on your parade. This is someone who is saying, you can't stop growing old. And even the enjoyment that you are saying that you can't, that, or that you are getting out of using your youth for your own pleasure, even eventually that will bring judgment. And so what he's saying is the sooner that you and I realize that the whole thing is meaningless, the better for us. Because we'll stop stressing about making it last forever. It can't. Okay. Let me be more explicit. 40 is not the new 20. It is 40. That phrase was invented by 40-year-olds who refuse to deal with reality. It is not the new 20, okay? What you get from relentless grasping at youth is not youth. It is Joan Rivers and Kenny Rogers. And Joan Rivers and Kenny Rogers look like some alien abducted them and replaced them with a mannequin. That is not youth. That is not youth. Youth cannot hold your hopes, friends, because you cannot hold on to it. It will fade, and you will be left forever clinging to the past and looking ridiculous doing it. 
Now, that's where our teacher leaves us. What I want to talk about now, though, is competing visions for a second. Because I want to talk about the why. Why do you and I devoutly pursue youth? It's not, look, th- this, is just, this is just standard, okay? And some of you are like, I don't pursue youth. It's because you're 23, okay? It's, it'll come, okay? Now, when I say competing visions, what I mean is this. We have come to believe... Um, a certain perspective on what it will mean for us to flourish as humans. And it is very different from the one that the Bible teaches. It borrows from what the Bible says, but it also twists it. It twists it. And here's what I mean. First and foremost, this youth-centered vision for what it means to flourish as a human tells us that we were made for life, or rather, uh, we were made to be young. Okay? And this is because we get the sense that decay and death are to be avoided. Uh, Look, the Bible would agree with that. The Bible would agree with that. Uh, The story that the Bible tells is that we were created for life, life in the presence of God. We were created for a relationship with Him. And that that was the, the beginning way of things. The Bible says that death is not natural. It was not meant to be a part of reality. We have a a vicious lie in our culture today. And it's something that kind of has extended for years that, that death is just part of life. No, 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 no. Death is a foreign invader on life. It was not meant to be here. It was never meant to be here. Death is a consequence of something. Because you see, that, that way in which we were made, in which all the relationships in the universe kind of lined up with one another, God and us and all of creation, the Bible says that didn't stay that way. That, that something else happened. And that something else is that we betrayed God. We were made for Him to be ultimate in our lives, but we turned from Him. We sought life on our own, and when we did, we brought death and decay into the world. And you and I know this. We know this intuitively. Like We know that death isn't right. And that is why we desperately try to escape it. The youth-centered vision says to escape it by holding on to your youth. But second, though, this youth-centered vision tells us that we were made for play. And we were made for irresponsibility. Maybe there's another way to say that, right? This is the notion that we shouldn't be held accountable. That others should take care of us. We should be cared for by everyone else. And that life should really be a long playtime with just bigger and better toys. And the core of this idea is that the world should revolve around you and that you will flourish when you are able to do what you want and not be held accountable. The Bible, however, wouldn't call this flourishing. In fact, the Scriptures would call that slavery. That that's bondage. uh, Bondage to yourself. Because, you see, the Scriptures say that we were created to love God and others, but when we betrayed God, we... um, We bent in on ourselves. Uh, We bent in on ourselves such that now, by nature, we look out for number one and only number one. We're interested in how things will benefit us. We are lovers of self. And when I say this, though, some of us get some ideas of what this looks like that, quite frankly, are just far too restricted. We think lovers of self, and we think people who are just off, um, you know, kind of doing irresponsible play all day long. But, you see, you can look really moral. You can look really religious. You can even look really loving and be completely turned in on yourselves. Because when we are good so that 
what, so that we get benefit for us. I'll be good so that I get something from it. When we are religious to try and make God like us, and when we do nice things for people so that we can have a good reputation or so that they will be indebted to us, that isn't loving God or others. That is loving ourselves. Normally, when we think selfish, we think partiers, womanizers, things like that, but it is both. The youth-centered vision says that the world must revolve around you and your play. The Scripture's vision says that the only way for us to flourish is for us to come out of the slavery of self and to place God back in that place of ultimacy that we were created to have Him in. Okay, last thing. I know you're shocked. Rick has three aspects of this. Last one here, okay? The youth-centered vision says that we were made to be admired, made to be objectified. This is the notion that says that you and I will be special so long as we're beautiful. And listen, this is strong. There's a surgical industry in this country that is $14 billion a year strong, whose entire goal is to make us beautiful, and it shoots far too low. Because you see, we know that we were made for acceptance, that we were made for love. But too often we will settle for being objectified and being desired. We settle for being used because we know that something deeper is wrong with us than just our fading appearance. Something deeper is wrong with us than the revelation of a few gray hairs or the effects of gravity, right? And the Scripture's vision agrees with that. Something is wrong, and it is something that objectification and Botox and silicone can never fix. Because when we betrayed God, we became alienated from Him. Listen, betrayal causes this. I know that that is something we, we struggle with in this culture. Like, wait a minute, isn't it God's job to, to just accept us no matter whatever happens? It's like, have you ever betrayed another person? If God is a force, right, then that's no big deal. But God's not a force. He's a person. You betray a person... A break happens. Alienation happens. It always does. If we are going to be restored to the God we were made for, if we're going to be restored for the life that we were made for and for the freedom we were made for, then something has got to be done with that betrayal. Because something is deeply wrong. And that is why the Bible says Jesus came. Because you see, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Which means that in Jesus, God came moved towards us to deal with our betrayal of Him. He lived the life that we couldn't. He perfectly loved God and others. That he, that he died to bear the judgment that all of our youthful foolishness deserved and all of our aged foolishness deserves. Like, that's what the cross is all about. It's about God dealing with your betrayal of Him. He bore, the death, he bore death in our place and then rose again so that He could offer life he could offer his life for our life, his death for our death, for all that come to him by faith. Now, here's how this all fits together. The youth-centered vision that you see on television, in advertisements, that you hit every time you go into a store with everyone that's posted up around you to tell you, buy this and, and you'll be great. You go into a grocery store and everyone sells food and drinks based on this vision. And that vision tells you that you will flourish as long as you are young, irresponsible, and beautiful. 
The teacher is telling you that this will fail you, and you know it will fail you. I don't have to convince you of that. Listen, I don't care what you wear, how much makeup you put on, or how touched up your selfies are. If you are hoping youth will save you, you are in trouble. Ultimately, this vision gives you a list of standards to keep that you and I can never fulfill. And then it fails to deliver on its promises, even if you could. But friends, Jesus doesn't do either of those. Christianity is unique in that it's the only vision for human flourishing that is based not on what you and I do, but on what God has done. It's not based on a set of standards that you and I keep. It's based on a set of standards that He kept and offers for you. In fact, it's, it's, not, a, it's not even... The better way to think of it is that it's not a set of standards to meet. It's a person to know. It's just a person to know. You weren't made for death. And so Jesus died and rose again to answer for your betrayal so that you can live eternally. You weren't made for slavery to yourself. And so Jesus died and rose again so that you might be delivered, given a new heart so that you can love God and love others as you were intended to. You weren't made for alienation. And so Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you could be reconciled to the God you were made for. Not so that He can use you. So that He can delight in you. So that He can delight in you. So friends, come to Jesus. I don't care where you are this morning. Listen, some of y'all have walked in here and, and you're like, I don't know. I, Christianity is a new thing. I don't know anything about it. Or some of you have thought you did know a lot about Christianity when you walked in this door. And maybe for the first time you're actually hearing something. Come to Jesus by faith. And all that really means is admitting that you've been running your own way. Turning from that and holding on to Him instead, placing your hopes in Him. He is the only hope for you and I to truly flourish. Your youth will fade, friends, but Jesus died and rose again, never to die again. But that leaves us with something else. That leaves us with the goodness of youth. Look, the teacher throughout this, our series has never been down on the things that he's investigating, right? He's looked at wealth, pleasure, uh, you know, relationships, power, all these things. And he's not saying those things are bad. They just can't be ultimate. And so the same is true for youth. Youth isn't bad. Enjoying youth isn't bad. Placing your hopes in youth is what makes it meaningless. So how do we use it rightly? That is the question. Look, the Scriptures paint youth as a time when we are full of energy uh, the, and, and foolishness. <laughs> all right? I can attest to that with experience. So for those of us who are young, and I'll let you decide if that's you, okay, uh, here are some ways to push against our youth-centered vision. First and foremost, humility. Look, our, our culture, as a culture, we have devalued experience and expertise because we think that you can become an expert on something in 30 seconds or 30 minutes by looking it up on Wikipedia. Right? That somehow you Google something and you instantly become an expert. Uh, that is ridiculous. If you want to know how to do life, how to be a parent, how to be a spouse, how to navigate a work environment with wisdom, stop thinking that older saints don't understand because they're out of touch or whatever. Like, it is interesting that in the, the, the um, 17th and 18th centuries, 
which is kind of the era in which our nation was founded, men would powder wigs and put them on so they look like they had age and maturity, so that people would take them seriously, right? Now, to get people to take you seriously, you think you have to wear skinny jeans, all right? It's just not the case. Um, If youth isn't ultimate, you can admit that you need help from people who aren't entirely certain how to use their smartphones, okay? Second, the first is youth, second, responsibility. And in talking about responsibility, I need to speak to the young men particularly. The youth-centered vision is wrong. You will not flourish by playing video games or fantasy football all day long. I can't remember where I heard it first, uh, but I, I like the phrase that men are like trucks. They, they ride better under a load. That is true of us. You were made to lovingly lead and serve others, not to selfishly want others to take care of you while you play. That is not what you were made for. And since youth isn't ultimate and Christ has redeemed you from your slavery to self, seek maturity and following Jesus by giving yourself for the sake of others. So first is humility, second responsibility, and lastly, let me speak to beauty. Listen, God made things beautiful. He made people beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. It is not Christian to somehow deny that, to deny that beauty exists, that there are, there are like people in this world who are attractive or beautiful people. There's nothing Christian about saying that. No, no, no. No. No, and it's not Christian to denigrate that either. However, if you, in how you dress or in your desires for your body or in the pictures that you post on social media, if you are motivated by the desire to be desired, then you are objectifying yourself. Objectifying people, whether it is others or yourself, is sin. Because what objectification does is it separates the body from the soul. And the Bible calls that death. So we have this phrase we call objectification. That's really nice language. It's murder. It is removing the body from the soul. It is saying... It is saying, I I don't really care about who others are, and I'm willing to use others or be used by others purely for the sake of pleasure. Friends, it is sin. Straight up. But since youth isn't ultimate, you can know that you aren't loved because you are lovely. You are lovely because God has loved you. God has loved you in Christ. Listen, youth cannot hold our hopes. (laughs) It is a false savior that leaves us grasping at the past and still in our sin. The good news is, no matter where you are this morning, no matter what age you are, (laughs) um, Christ frees us to flourish in a vision that is decidedly different from one that can never deliver for us. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time. Thank you for the fact that you, by your grace, have come and rescued us. And that you have freed us. But my 
my friends in this room, and even, frankly, myself, we, we struggle to believe that youth cannot save us. That being beautifully objectified, being uh, irresponsible by, by thinking that we know everything, that this is not for us life. We struggle believing that that isn't life. And so, Lord, we need you by your Spirit to come and show us, not just disrupt us, not just cancel that out, but to entice us towards something more. Something that is bound up in a reconciled relationship with you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And whether we are believing that for the first time or just for the first time today, Lord, we, we need you to help us. Because you are the one who is the Lord and the giver of life. And so we ask that you would do that even this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.